Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are almost done with this letter, only to jump into the second iteration of the letter in 2 Thessalonians. If you're visiting with us, welcome. But you have come at the end of a long book with uh, um, a lot of context that we don't have time to reset today, but hopefully uh, still seek to be faithful to the text um, as it's laid out before us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll look at just verses 12 through 15 together this morning. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and to everyone. Paul's main point is that in light of the gospel, Christians in the church should relate to and come alongside one another as God has commanded. In light of the gospel that he's just laid out, in the last passage even, Christians in the church should relate to and come alongside one another as God has commanded. I want you to imagine with me briefly what it would be like to bowl without being able to see the pins, the pins at the end of the lane. And I want you to imagine with me bowling a perfect game, which is a 300, uh, without being able to see the pins. As it turned out, in 1933, Bill Knox, who is now a member of the uh, American Bowling Congress Hall of Fame actually bowled a perfect 300 without being able to see the pins. How on earth did he do this? He had a screen that was right over the foul line that was placed here so he could not see any of the pins. And he was able to bowl a 300 because he used a technique called spot bowling, which is where you don't aim for the pins per se, but you would pick out a spot on the lane, one of those little markers perhaps, and you would throw your ball in just the right way to that short target there on the floor, and you knew that if it hit the target the right way, right at the front of the lane, that it would be on a proper trajectory uh, to, to get a strike there at the end of the lane. He accomplished the end goal that he couldn't see, by executing a closer goal, and in so doing, he was able to have great success. I heard about that story this week, and as someone who's always looking for illustrations, I was like, oh, this is perfect. What does it look like to live in light of an end you know is there, you even know the shape of it if you were to see it, but you, just, you can't see it. You can't see the end in that sense. Paul has just gone through an extended section, especially for a letter this small, on the day of the Lord, last things, the end. And in this little passage, we get a bunch of staccato-like imperatives that follow all of these indicatives he's already laid out. He's laid out particularly what the end of the lane looks like. 
what the shape of it is. He said it's going to be unexpected. He said, but you can know what it's going to look like if you're a believer. Now here, even though you can't see it, you've got a screen. Here's what you should be shooting for now. Here is how to, again, accomplish the end goal by aiming at closer ones. He's laid out the gospel, the hope of salvation, the death of Jesus Christ as the guarantor for those who are walking in the daytime. He says, encourage each other with these things. And on the basis of that, he's going to tell us how to relate to people within the church. And he kind of splits it into two categories, basically. One is how to relate to leaders and then how to relate to one another. So let's walk through these briefly and then make some applications together as we try to think well about the conduct of the church in light of the last day that's coming for the church. Okay? The first thing he says about leaders is that they should be respected, that you should respect leaders. And he gives a threefold description there of what a leader is supposed to be doing what a leader looks like, according to Paul. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who, one, labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Those three things. The first, labor, the word for labor here, <coughs> excuse me, is the same word Paul often uses for manual labor or hard work. The idea is, is very, very clear here that someone who is going to be a leader in this sense in the New Testament church, who's working, who's a leader in the church, is going to be working hard for the church. Paul does not have a category for a kind of board member pastor who doesn't do much of anything, occasionally weighs in, tells other people to do things, doesn't ever get their hands dirty, maybe enjoy a title, maybe enjoy a salary perhaps. And that's why it said, it's been said many times that the pulpit, which is a synecdoche for the just the pastoral position, is a great place to hide laziness. I've said that from up here before. Paul does not have a category for that. He doesn't have a, a category for someone who's a, past, a pastor just entitled only. This is someone who labors among people. He puts his hand to the plow for the people of God, for the people that God has entrusted to him, number one. That's the first element. The second element is someone who exercises oversight here. The rule, excuse me, the root word here for who is over you is the same word that's translated rule or manage back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for an elder who rules or manages his household well, ruling the household of God. Now, that's occasion questions. Is Paul here talking about elders at the church of Thessalonica uh, or is he talking about those who are acting like elders but actually aren't? Uh, you know, the commentators disagree, okay? We know that Aristarchus and Secundus from Acts 20 were leaders in the Macedonian region. It's very likely that they were influential at Thessalonica. But regardless, because of the description here, whoever is being described as someone who should be respected, highly esteemed, has authority. So once you assume that, whether they had been officially installed as elders, okay, as presbyteros, or whether they were men on their way towards that and functioning like that, I don't really know that it makes a huge difference. What it has in mind here is an elder or an elder-ish kind of person who exercises 1 Timothy 3 oversight, who is over you in the Lord. Now, to be very clear, and that's why I said I wanted to make the parallel with 1 Timothy 3, the over you does not mean more important than you. It does not mean more valuable than you. 
It doesn't necessarily mean smarter than you. It doesn't, nece- it doesn't mean anything like that. It means that someone has oversight, has authoritative oversight over you in the household of God in light of their position. That's the second thing. And then finally, someone who admonishes you. The word admonish, at least in Greek, is a neutral word. It could mean something good or bad, but in Paul, it almost always has, takes a negative connotation. In other words, it takes something like a warning or a rebuke, and it's generally related to some kind of unethical conduct. And the idea here, and can't you just kind of feel the tension with me, is he's telling the church at Thessalonica that you need to respect those who warn you and who rebuke you in your sin. Even as they are warning you to run from sin, or even as they are rebuking you in sin, when you might have a natural disposition to do something else, you should respect them for it. They are seeking the welfare of your souls. Respect those who labor among you, who exercise oversight over you and of you, and who admonish you in the Lord. And then in verse 13, he's going to give a parallel, but he's going to take a little bit different angle. He says, uh, he says um, here's the basis on which they are going to serve, and then he is going to give a manner in which uh, to esteem them and a motive for doing so. In 13, esteem them very highly in love because of their work, these people, these leaders he's talking about. First, esteem. <coughs> Excuse me. How are you supposed to esteem? What does it look like to esteem highly? It's not just abstract. Wow, I really think, I really think that person is amazing. They're some, some kind of demagogue. They are some kind of charismatic leader who just captures me. Um, that's not certain. That's that's not what Paul says here. He says, the, "What does it look like? It's teased out in love. That's the manner in which you're supposed to esteem them. I want to love those who labor for me, as God has called me." To love them. This is a critical critical part of it. In one sense, notice how unremarkable that is. There is certainly something here that's going to set these people apart in terms of how they're esteemed, but this isn't it. Because you're supposed to love everybody. But there's supposed to be an esteem that issues forth in love for these leaders. Are you loving your leaders as God would have you? Paul is asking the church at Thessalonica What is the motive for that? Again, we get to the tie-in with the first verse. What makes the leaders the proper object of this this high esteem and respect is fleshed out in their work, in their labor among you, in their oversight, in their admonishment. And I, I want to repeat, because it seems that the text is repeating, that elders, pastors, are to be respected as those... and insofar as they represent people who are faithfully laboring faithfully laboring, admonishing, overseeing, there is not some kind of unconditional, automatic, hands-off way to walk pastorally like this in a way that is worthy of those things. There is no unconditional, hands-off kind of a way to walk pastorally in a way that's worthy of this kind of respect and esteem. In fact, a couple commentators point out the fact that the title elder or pastor or overseer isn't there demonstrates that fact. Demonstrate that fact. It's not because someone merely has the title. It's not that merely someone has a title. It's because they are laboring. It's because 
because of the office that they inhabit, they are laboring in this particular kind of way. And on the basis of their work, verse 13, you are to respect them, to hold them highly, hold them in high regard. And he begins to transition here at the last part of verse 13. He says, be at peace among yourselves. You know, when you go to seminary, you expect to get answers to certain questions. Um, and so when I went to seminary, as I was expecting, when I get to seminary, I'm going to get the answers. A couple of these like big theological questions. And to whatever extent you can put together a framework and come up with the answer to some of these things, at least in your own mind, there are always throughout the Bible just little phrases like this that are far, you have far less to go on. You have far less to even interpret with. Be at peace with one another. That's it. Like, but in this context of honoring leaders, what's that mean? Like, I don't have a big frame where, I don't, you know, there's not a bunch of typology and this and that. It's just, it's just a very bald assertion, and we're going to get the same thing in the next verse. These staccato little exhortations. It's like, who are the faint-hearted? What exactly does that mean? Who are the weak exactly? And this, it's just like, it's challenging, but here's, but you have to do the best you can with it. It's not difficult to see in a, in the context of a fledgling church, how a certain group of people who are overseeing and who are admonishing everyone else might cause a little bit of friction. Okay. So we were all regular folks. This leather worker came preaching a gospel. Now all of a sudden, there are people who are over me and warning me and rebuking me, and I'm being told to respect them. And hold, not only that, but to esteem them very highly. You could see how there might be a little bit of grind, not just between leaders and congregants, but between the congregants themselves. Hey, I follow this person. No, I follow this person. No, I did. can you believe what that person said to me? I know that they work down here. Who do they think they are now? And they're, now there's grousing between them. There's division being caused. And Paul says, to whatever extent it's possible between you to, to live peaceably under the loving leadership of those whose God has appointed over you. Live peaceably under the leadership of God has, that God has appointed over you. And now critically, he's going to turn to the congregation to give a series of, again, short staccato-like exhortations that pack a punch. He's ending how to relate to leadership and transitioning there with be at peace with one another and talking about how to relate to one another in, a, in the purest sense. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, and we urge you, brothers, four things. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul has already referred to the idle at Thessalonica. There's a group of people who are simply idle. He's actually going to do so again in 2 Thessalonians. We'll get there soon enough. But Paul already commanded them when he was there teaching and preaching to work. And so the idea emerges is that there's not just a group of folks there who are idle they're, they're in between jobs, they're disabled, they're whatever. It's that they're actually resistant to work. It could be because they thought the day of the Lord was at hand and therefore pursuing a career was futile. It could be that they were taking advantage of patron relationships and getting sponsored by wealthier Christians. 
Whatever it is, they are resistant to the idea of work. That's why it's still here in this letter after Paul taught about it while he was there. That's why it's going to show up again in 2 Thessalonians and the other letter. There's a group of people who are resistant to work. And he says, admonish them, everyone. Now notice what happens here. The admonish is the same thing that the elders were tasked with doing just a second ago. The leaders who would, so you're supposed to respect and esteem highly those who admonish you. The exact same word, he looks out at everyone and said, admonish the idle person. Look around, who is resistant to work, admonish them. Oh, but Tyler, Paul, doesn't, uh, shouldn't we take this to the, the church leadership? Shouldn't we report this to the person who does the admonishing? And Paul says, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily, maybe, but not necessarily. At least not after, not until you have admonished this person yourself. Take up the mantle of ministry yourself before you go report it to an elder or a leader. Identify such people, rebuke them, warn them, remind them of what I have said. Thessalonians. That's the first one. To admonish the idle. The second is to encourage the literally in the Greek little sold. The little sold. The faint hearted. Because little sold it would be an odd translation. But we are left wondering exactly what that means. And with such a short phrase, there's not a lot of help here. You've got lexical evidence. That's about it. Does it mean someone, and we know it doesn't mean someone who's scared of the dark or someone who, you know, doesn't like spiders. We're not talking about someone, we, we, we can't, we're not, we're not trying to interpret it in a, a way that the 21st century American person might stereotype a faint-hearted person, someone who faints perhaps literally when they see blood. Um, so if we're trying to seek to understand this in context the best, Paul has already discussed a couple of things. He discussed in the last chapter, chapter 4, three ethical uh, problems that needed address, addressing and then one worldview-shaping item, the day of the Lord. He addressed sexual purity, work, and bereavement, all in light of the coming day of the Lord. Those are our kind of four things that he has um, related things back to. What exactly is the little soul then? Well, it does seem to me that if we're going to, if I have to take the best shot here, and I'm not saying there aren't wider applications in general, but in this particular context, it seems to me that those who are little souled or faint hearted are, is that group of people who are struggling with the reality of those who have died in Christ and they're worried about what that means for them because they've died before Christ returns. And in chapter 4, Paul says, they will not be disadvantaged at all. No, in fact, it's the dead in Christ who are going to rise first. So don't despair. They're not going to miss out on that apontessin, that meeting the royal king and, 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 and ushering him back down to, to earth. They aren't going to miss out. Your loved ones, because Jesus Christ died, back up and look at that, verse 10, who died for us, that is Christ, that whether we are awake or asleep, whether you are living in Christ, whether you are dead, we might live with Him. So don't despair. Don't have a faint heart over these things. Okay? Do not have a faint heart. Be encouraged, he says. Encourage one another towards these things. If you have a faintness of heart brought on by a lack of understanding there. And then the, the third thing he says here is be devoted to the weak. Help is a weak, ironically, translation. 
It's a very weak translation of this term. It makes it sound like you could give some kind of external aid, send a check to somebody. That's not what the word is supposed to kind of designate here. It's kind of an up-close aid and assistance that is, that is personal, that is sustained. Who are the weak here? Again, is it, is it the weak of Romans or 1 Corinthians, the person whose conscience is defiled by meat? Well, that's not it. Is it the person who doesn't lift weights? Well, no, that's not it. Well, is it the person who just uh, can't? Well, what's the best candidate in the context? If we're going to make a contextual call, what's the best candidate? The commentators are split between two options. One is the weak here are those who uh, are struggling in sexual immorality, mentioned in verse, excuse me, chapter 4. That the will, this is the will of God, your sanctification, to abstain from sexual immorality, that everyone should be able to control their own vessel, and that those who are weaker are those who do not have the strength to do that. Um, the, the problem is that the problem is that we never see Paul, and certainly not in this context, suggest use the use the category of being devoted to and helping people in sexual immorality. Now, I'm not for one second saying that people who are struggling with sexual immorality in the church that we shouldn't come alongside them and aid them. But the, in the in Pauline categorical language, it would be re, in the context of Thessalonians, especially, it would be help them by rebuking and warning them and calling them back to repentance. Categorically here, the idea of being devoted to someone who's shamelessly indulging their sexual immorality uh, doesn't have a place. Paul said, if you're not listening to what I'm saying here about sexual morality, you're not disobeying me. You're disobeying the very words of God. In 2 Thessalonians, he's going to say, if, if you're not listening to what I write in this letter, put, put them out of the church. Have nothing to do with them so that they can be ashamed. So I, I don't think that I don't think that be devoted to and the help go uh, best with someone who is weak in the sense that they cannot uh, refrain from indulging in sexual immorality. We would expect different language there, I think, almost certainly. I think most of the commentators are right to suggest that. What is it, though? Well, again, I, I tend to think, if we're going at the options in the context, that the weak person is probably someone who has a less mature faith that gives rise to a flimsy, a flimsy hope for themselves on the day of the Lord. They have, no, they have a very weak sense of that helmet of salvation, of the hope of salvation going on their head. They are spiritually weak. They look at the day of the Lord in fear, which is why Paul is even saying, you're not destined for wrath. You're destined to obtain salvation for Christ who died with you. Even if you die now or you're alive when He comes, your salvation is on lockdown. It's someone who says, I, I, I fear, I fear the day of the Lord. I fear the judgment of God. I, I, I fear that. I, I do not want, when I, I don't feel like I stand strong in Christ. No, I feel like I, I, I always am perilously positioned. And if, I, if the day of the Lord happened today, I, I would, if I'm honest, I would be terrified. This is someone who is, who is weaker in their faith in this particular context. That's, that's, my, that's my best suggestion here with the caveat, and I already gave examples like someone whose faith is weaker, meat sacrificed to idols, observing special days, whatever the case may be, uh, that it could have wider import uh, more generally. But in the context of 1 Thessalonians, who's he talking to? He, he is saying this historically to someone at Thessalonica. Who is it? And I'm suggesting that the best candidate option is people who are looking into the day of the Lord and saying, this, I don't have strength. I'm not going to have the strength to stand. 
Okay? I have a weak faith. Finally, he concludes with saying, with regard to all the groups, be patient with them all. I want you to listen to one very, very well-known pastor, very well-respected pastor, what he says here. This is the part of the commentary you're not supposed to read the congregation. Which means that I'm going to read it. Listen to what he says to other pastors. One might say that the idle, the anxious, and the weak were the problem children of the church family, plagued respectively with problems of understanding, faith, and conduct. Every church has members of this kind. We have no excuse for becoming impatient with them on the ground that they are difficult, demanding, disappointing, argumentative, or rude. On the contrary, we are to be patient with them all. Macrothumia, often translated long-suffering, which is this, is an attribute of God. It's a fruit of the Spirit and a characteristic of love. Since God had been infinitely patient, since God has been infinitely patient with us, as he was with Saul of Tarsus, so too we must be patient with others. And I'm happy to say on your behalf, because remember, this part is he is addressing the, the larger body. He's not saying how to address, he's not addressing leaders and how, what they're supposed to do. He's addressing the church now, relating to one another. And he's saying, be patient with them. And on behalf of, of you raising your hand in your heart, I'll tell you that sometimes it can be incredibly frustrating coming alongside people. Incredibly frustrating. Here we are again. Come on. That's what you want to say. Are you going to be patient with them all? Are you going to help the weak? Are you going to encourage the faint-hearted? Regardless of what accounts for their weakness in their particular context or their faint-heartedness, are you going to admonish the idol? Are you going to be patient even when it's not easy? Because you know, brothers and sisters, it's not hard to be patient with someone who doesn't require any because they just, they just zip right along. You know that, right? I'm so patient with the person who just doesn't ever cause any tension or any problems. Real proud of myself. It's like, great. Not how it works. It's challenging. It's challenging. And he says this is not something when things get particularly frustrating that you can outsource to the professionals, kick it up the ladder. He says this is something that you are tasked with doing, being patient as you walk alongside other people while admonishing them and rebuking them when appropriate. So I don't want you to get the idea that what you're doing, that what we're tasked with doing here is coming alongside people and just endlessly uh, saying the same thing over and over or giving them a pass for sin or patting them on the back, waiting till they sin again and then giving them another pat on the back. I'm not talking about complacency. Paul's not talking about complacency. He's talking about being patient as people move forward. Being patient as people move forward. What, what happens if that person just isn't listening? That will come in 2 Thessalonians where he says, if a person's not just listening, they got to go. They've got to go. Put them out so that they will feel shame and then they will repent and start walking forward. Be patient with them all. He says, do not repay anyone for evil. Verse 15. Do not see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. <laughs> Paul assumes a reality both inside and outside the church. Here's the reality. 
Regrettably, people are going to sin against one another. Do evil to each other. I have a pastor, when he teaches his membership class, he says, if you're looking for a church where no one hurts your feelings and no one sins against you, make sure to go to the, the one down the road instead. Of course, he's joking. But his point is well taken. Is that this, human, this is a human condition that awaits redemption. You're going to sin against each other. Sometimes there's just miscommunication. Sometimes just someone gets left out and there's hurt feelings that don't have explicit sin. That happens too. But sometimes there's just sin. My pride gets in the way. My selfishness gets in the way. Whatever it is gets in the way. I'm sinning against people. And he says, but if you are living in light of the gospel, if you are living in light of the end, you are never to do evil back to someone because they did you evil. This is just the old what your mom or dad used to say when you were a kid. This is it teased out biblically right here. Two wrongs don't make a right. This is essentially what this is. Do not repay someone evil for doing evil to you, but do good, both in the church and also to everyone. It, 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 and, and I understand that this is a difficult word at this time. The, the cultural import here is not lost on me. What if we've been wronged? What if we've sought every peaceful way of doing this possible? Hmm? What if we've tried to push back in every peaceful way that we know to make our voice heard? Then can we escalate and inflict evil after we've exhausted all of the peaceful options? Can we result to pragmatism here? Because we're trying to get it done. Sometimes you can't get it done without taking the gloves off a little bit of retribution and, and, and evil for the evil that has been done. And Paul says for the Christian, it's a very clear answer. No. This isn't utilitarianism. It's not pragmatism. No. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 12, at the end of Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17. He says, I don't, how can you be more explicit? Listen to how many times he says it. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Picture of the end. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And I say the end, it's also going to be seized out in Romans 13, the government is an instrument of God's wrath. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heat burning coals on his head. Closes with verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He closes this little section in saying, people are going to do evil things to you within the church, and people are going to do evil things to you from outside the church. And if we were playing a utilitarian, pragmatic game, the most effective way to get what you want might be to do evil back to them. But that's not the game we're playing. We're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The ends do not justify the means. The ends do not justify the means as some system, as some kind of principle of normative ethics. Confirms what he says in Galatians 6.10, that we are to seek to do good to those inside the church, but also outside the church. Seek to do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. Don't repay anyone for evil. Seek to do good instead. And by the way, let me just, let me just address this. So you say, well, Tyler, if you say you, you're not supposed to do evil, maybe I've, I've tried to peacefully exhaust every option that I know to bring awareness to, 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 to what's going on here. 
what, 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 are you, what are you suggesting I do as an alternative? I'll say that's a great question that I don't have at the tip of my tongue right now. I'd like to have a conversation that's probably multi-tiered. I'm just saying what Paul says to not do. I want to I feel the weight of the, of the challenge there while pointing out here's one way to certainly not go forward. Okay? In light of the gospel then, Christians in the church should relate to and come alongside one another as God has commanded. What does this look like to be the church then? The pins at the end of the lane, I can't see. Practice the spot bowling technique, executing in these particular ways so I'm oriented correctly at the day of the Lord. I could pick out a couple things out of this passage. I picked two. I picked two to discuss because I think they are particularly important at the cultural moment. The first is how exactly to respect and esteem leaders. It's not lost on me that this is a bit of an awkward sermon to preach, I suppose. Um, what, what does this look like? Let me paint a picture of two extremes. On one extreme, you have leader. The, 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 the idea is that a leader, an elder pastor, is, is supposed to be untouchable. You're just supposed to follow them blindly. They are these charismatic demagogues. They know the Bible so much better than you. They are so wise. They kind of float up on the stage there. And um, they should always get the red carpet treatment if they come into your home. And that's kind of this one sense of highly esteemed. The other sense is there's absolutely nothing different about pastors at all. They shouldn't be esteemed more highly than anyone else, respected more than anywhere else. They are literally just someone else and nothing more. Neither one of those is accurate. Neither one of them squares with this text or the larger text of Scripture. So we might ask the question another way as well. How do I submit to my elders? How do I submit to the teaching of my elders, even 1 Timothy 2, uh, in a way that is respectful and shows that I hold them in higher esteem, but with a way that does not abdicate my own decision-making and my own responsibility to understand the Bible so I don't end up placing my faith in a man, even a very good man, perhaps. But how do I submit to the teaching of the elders while at the same time not abdicating my responsibility to actually look at the Word of God and see is this what is what the Bible says? You see the tension there? There's a tension pregnant there within the situation. Let me give you a couple of guidelines. I hope these are practical principles. We have a lot of visitors here. Hopefully that you can take back to your local church context and implement these things. If you feel that tension, wanting to respect, submit to your leaders, but also wanting to not abdicate your own reasoning, abdicate your own responsibility to understand the Bible, lead your family. The first practical would just be to interact respectfully and politely. That's a really low bar, brothers and sisters, but it seems to be one that a lot of people just really struggle to hit. Um, and, and so this is what you would just do with anyone, just to interact, hopefully, to interact just respectfully and politely, uh, politely, wow, politely. Politefully works too, but I mean, we'll, we'll go with respectfully and politely. And, uh, you know, and so this is not making snarky comments. It's not being uh, sarcastic and cynical. It's not taking little jabs. It's just, it's just, this is just really good ground game here. Hopefully this is the way you, this, this part of the esteeming highly and respecting, you treat everyone uh, in this way, respectfully and politely. Number two uh, is interpreting what your leaders say, particularly from a pulpit like this, charitably, giving the best interpretation. Okay, the reality is, uh, if, if there, when you are proclaiming a word to a group of people this large, you simply do not have time 
to make a caveat for every single thing that you say, such that the most aggrieved person could not possibly misunderstand or possibly have their feelings hurt. You cannot possibly tease out every theological statement with the precision of a systematic theological textbook. You cannot possibly say everything in such a nuanced way. Uh, so you, you get my point. The idea is to interpret what you're as an act of esteeming them highly respectfully and give them the benefit of the doubt and assume the best of what, what they're saying until you have reason to believe otherwise. Okay, assume the best about what they're saying. Well, I think what he was saying is that that's not at all what I was what I was getting at. I've, I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me after the sermon like you were talking about me, weren't you? It's like, no, I wasn't talking about you. I didn't even. Why would you say that? Because that's like my struggle. I was like, talk to the Holy Spirit, not me. Uh, I don't have, I'm not singling out people in my head or I walk through a, a sermon manuscript. So interpret charitably, assume the best about what's said, what's not said. And that leads to the third thing is ask questions. Come and ask questions instead of instantly forming disagreements or grievances. Leader says something, oh, there it is. That's what I was waiting for. I was waiting to say this. Now I'm going to dig my heels in on my position and we're just going to agree to disagree. Well, why don't you come ask questions? Hey, when you said this, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Hey, it was my understanding that you said this. I'm struggling to bridge the gap between what you said here and what you said here. Can you help me understand a little bit better? Have a, have a, have a disposition of asking questions as opposed to instantly forming a grievance or instantly saying, well, pff, I just disagree, move on. Okay? Number four, following out of that one, is have a disposition of listening to teaching and instruction that defaults to, I'm going to lean in the direction my pastor teaches on an issue uh, as I study the God's word for myself to make sure it supports what he's actually saying. I want to lean in the direction, kind of an innocent till proven guilty as a way of respecting them and esteeming them highly. Uh, I'm going I'm to kind of go with what they're saying. I'm going to be led in that direction as I study God's word for myself. Remember the, the Christians in Berea were more noble than the other Jews. They were studied. Paul came to them with the gospel and they were like, you're saying this. They opened up their scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. Remember that? Acts 17. Go check it out. They weren't skeptical. They just wanted to see it in the text. And that's, that is perfectly reasonable. That's perfectly reasonable. Any leader who gets up and just says, here's what it means. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Trust me is a very bad leadership philosophy over the long haul. You're showing people in the text so they don't be, they're not placing your faith in a man. So I'm going to lean in this. I'm going to lean in a particular way uh, until I find myself, after studying the scripture, just just simply disagreeing. And let me just say that the disagreement should be on something that's secondary. It shouldn't be or you're going to have deep problems on something that's core to the gospel. Okay. So I have. A, there's a lot of people who in in our church here who disagree with me. I'm sure about a host of things, a host of things, um, and that's fine. Maybe you thought faint-hearted in that passage referred to something else. Okay, maybe so. I'd love to hear your argument. Come help me understand it better, and I'll I'll go I'll give the I'll email the commentators uh, and help them understand it better as well. But but the point is, there's freedom to disagree about things. The way in which you do it is really the key. So having a dis disposition of listening to teaching as I study God's word to myself to make sure what I'm hearing is confirmed by the word of God. 
Next is, and this is what I would say about your spouse too, don't disparage them before other people. This is not to be confused with talking them up before other people, inflating them, whatever, but you wouldn't, hopefully, hopefully you would not talk bad about your spouse to other people uh, when they weren't around. And so similarly, in order to hold up a leader in high regard and to esteem them is to not disparage them before other people, to not talk bad about them. Well, I know this one time they were at a party and they said this in this particular context and it was bad optics. And I'm going to bring this up to tell this person, why would you do that? that that's not, that's, no one wants to be remembered for their misinterpreted or worse moments. That's not respecting or esteeming someone. Don't disparage your leaders before other people. And then finally, seek to help them have their needs net because that's what esteeming highly in love, partially what that is. And I just want to pause and say thank you. I'm the, I'm the, only uh, uh, staff elder here uh, at our church, and I feel like my needs are more than well met, both of the love of people relationally and financially. So thank you. I think y'all do a, a tremendous, tremendous job uh, surrounding me as one of the pastors. But seek to help meet pastors' needs when they have them. And so I think if you can do these things, you will strike a balance between the extreme of listen unquestioningly and there's nothing special, authoritative, different, or anything about a pastor, okay? That's the first point, how to respect and esteem leaders. I hope some of those are practical helps for you as you think through a disposition towards leadership. The second is the importance of every member ministry. Every member ministry. When you don't have, when I say every member ministry, I don't necessarily literally mean every single member There's, might be a variety of circumstantial reasons why people aren't doing ministry in your church. But I mean people other than the pastors doing ministry. When you don't have every member ministry, you get consumers instead of contributors. People's gifts remain underdeveloped. And pastors become firefighters. When other people aren't doing any admonishing, any helping, any serving, any teaching one another in conversation... You know how you get the attention of the pastors? You get yourself a crisis or a problem. And then the pastors come running because that's the model. We're sheep. They're shepherds. If you over-index too much on like that one particular model, you're going to end up with a bunch of people who aren't mobilized to do ministry. In the picture, or the context here, the picture is that a good leader multiplies ministry. He doesn't monopolize it making himself in the church, uh, making himself in this kind of charismatic personality what the church is stitched together on, and everyone has to come to him to, for all the counsel and all the rest. No, he multiplies ministry so that people are doing ministry to one another, with one another, alongside one another. Members are taking responsibility toward one another. It's not just the elder admonishing. It is the whole church at Thessalonica admonishing. In other cases, it's simply encouraging people. Could you be devoted to someone? Could you help someone? Could you pray for somebody? That's incredibly real and impactful ministry. Let me just say, as, as I close here, as, you, as I close, I was reading through the, uh, the end of Romans, Romans chapter 16, and, and I'm always struck by these forgotten names that show up at the end of these books in Paul's lists. Um, so much wonder, and two of them struck me this week as I finished Romans. One was Paul's mention in Romans 16, 6 of Mary. Y'all all know Mary, right? 
No, you don't. You don't know anything about Mary. You know why? Because no one knows anything about Mary except that she apparently worked hard. That's it. He singles her out as someone who worked hard for the church at Rome. Period. That's it. We know nothing else. What about, is that it though? No, no, it gets better. What about Rufus? Rufus. And, or his un, he, he singles out Rufus, but he, but he singles out Rufus's mother. But she doesn't even get her name in there. Rufus's unnamed mother. Do y'all, y'all know about her, right? No, we don't know anything about Rufus's unnamed mother, except that she was like a mother to Paul as well. She was like a mother to Paul as well. Boom, that's it. No one knows anything else about the unnamed mother of Rufus. So don't miss the takeaway in such examples as we close. Apparently things like working hard to bless the church, playing a parental nourishing roles to younger believers in the body of Christ, things that apparently could be done even to an apostle, were significant enough acts of love and service to be recorded and called out in inspired Scripture for the church to read forever. You don't have to be incredibly gifted to make incredible impact. You don't have to be incredibly gifted to make incredible impact. Let the example of Rufus's mom and Mary encourage you as you look out and do ministry in our church context. How do you minister in this church? How could you? How might you volunteer? How do you use your gifts? Could you sit with somebody Are you a passive receiver or are you trying to utilize your gifts in our church? What we want you and more importantly, what Paul wants you is to be ministering to each other in this body of faith with this incredible array of gifts that we have so that the church could be built up and that we could reach maturity in Christ. May it be so. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the ministry that you have given us. Thankful for these brothers and sisters, everyone represented in this room. We are thankful for your Holy Spirit that indwells us if we are united to Christ. And I pray that if there's anyone here who thinks that they are not mature enough or gifted enough to do, quote, ministry, that you would prick their heart. That you would help them understand that ministry doesn't require seminary training, extensive Bible knowledge doesn't even require being a mature Christian, but that they can serve, that they can listen, that they can help the weak, that they can be an encouragement to someone. I pray that you would help our church be a stronger church as a result of these truths proclaimed here on this morning, that we would take these things to heart. Give us grace in Jesus' name.